Hi, I'm Beth. And I'm Jimmy. And we're the Talk to the Hand podcast. Hi, Beth. Hi, Jimmy. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very, very well. We had good feedback about the Steps episode and the way that the content was shared between us throughout the episode. Yeah, they did. Our viewers did say that they liked the sort of the ping pong approach. Absolutely. So we thought we'd give that another go and see how that works for us. Mm. So today we're going to be sharing an episode and it's on a very interesting character. Somebody who played a number of roles throughout his career and became typecast for a large period of that career. But the character he was typecast in playing was very different to the the man he was away from the cameras. Very much so. So today we're going to be covering an episode on the life and career of Hugh Grant. The scene Hugh Grant was in was one of your favourite scenes from the movies, wasn't it? Yes, it was. But we'll we'll talk about that later. Yeah, because you're just a girl. Standing in front of a boy. Recording a podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. But for now, let's... Rewind to the 90s. Hugh John Mungo Grant was born on September the 9th, 1960 in Hammersmith, London. Mungo Grant, Beth. Yeah, I... I, uh, Carry on. (laughs) Otherwise, I'll just get the fit of giggles and then I won't be able to carry on. He was the second of five children in his family and was born to Finvola, Susan McLean and Captain James Murray Grant. His grandfather, Colonel James Murray Grant, received recognition for his bravery and leadership during World War II. The esteemed stock from which Grant originated actually went further than that. Links can be traced in his family tree back to Sir Walter Raleigh, Prime Minister Spencer Percival, and a wide range of other notable individuals of British history. That so makes sense for Hugh Grant, doesn't it? It does. He's clearly from greater stock than you and I. (laughs) Or or me, at least. Yeah, I was going to say. Grant's father served as an officer in the Seaforth Highlanders in Germany for eight years. He also managed a carpet business and enjoyed pursuits like golf and watercolour painting. The family resided in Chiswick, West London, near Arlington Park Mansions on Sutton Lane. His mother was a dedicated schoolteacher, imparting Latin, French and music to students in West London State Schools for over three decades. Grant attended Latimer Upper School in London between 1969 and 1978, which he managed to get via a scholarship. He was very sporty, playing for the football, rugby and cricket teams. There used to be a BBC radio and television quiz show for teams from secondary schools, which ran for 38 years. Q represented his school on the show in 1976 and they made it to the semi-finals. See, I would have guessed that Hugh was a clever guy, but the sporting Mm. side of it probably surprised me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. In 1979, he attended New College Oxford, studying English literature before graduating with a 2-1 degree. He featured in his first film while he was there, a film called Privileged, which was produced by the Oxford University Film Foundation. Following this, Grant explored an array of occupations, and these included roles such as serving as an assistant groundsman at Fulham Football Club, providing tutoring services, crafting comedic sketches for television programmes, and collaborating with talkback productions to both write and produce radio advertisements for products such as Mighty White Bread and Red Stripe Lager. I remember Mighty White Bread to you. Yeah. yeah. Only, Mighty White. Only now that you've said it, but there was a thing where it would make you stronger, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
All of this was done with the intention of raising the required funds to continue his education. And when he was approached at the screening of Privileged by an agent offering to take him on, he actually turned the agent down. He later changed his mind thinking that doing a year of acting would help top up the funds he needed to continue his studies. So his focus around this time was very much on his studies and acting was purely just a means for him to be able to continue those studies. Yes, it shows a strong mentality for the academic side as opposed to acting. I always found Grant to be something of a reluctant celebrity. So he did the acting and he was clearly a a huge name and remains so to this day, but... He never really seemed to enjoy indulging in the celebrity side of his life. Yeah, yeah, that's true that you say that. It didn't take long for him to be offered an acting role. He was given the opportunity to be in a movie called The Bounty, which was released in 1984. However, he could not take the supporting role as he had not yet got an equity card. You had to earn your stripes to get one, so he joined the Nottingham Playhouse for a year. Grant then created a sketch comedy group called the Jockeys of Norfolk with his friends Chris Lang and Andy Taylor. They did the rounds of London pubs before gaining some profile after attending the 1985 Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Their success then led to the group getting a chance on Russell Harty's BBC Two TV show. A year later, he performed in an Inspector Calls at the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester. The reviews were extremely positive and his reputation in the industry was growing. And it's interesting, a lot of the things he was doing back at that time related around comedy. Mm, writing the comedy mm. as well. It's not something I would have seen from the Hugh Grant we've seen see. in many movies over the years. Yes, and that's why it would be good to see the turning point, him getting away from the comedy side to obviously the rom-coms that we know him for. Well, he landed a number of television and film roles over the next couple of years, including his first lead role in a film called Morris. He ended up jointly winning the Volpe Cup for Best Actor at the Venice Film Festival with his co-star Clive Durham. It was in 1987 that Grant met actress Elizabeth Hurley, who was in the same film, playing Grant's character's ex-lover, and the pair got on and began dating. Meanwhile, Grant also featured in BAFTA Award-nominated White Mischief and secured a supporting role in a movie with Anthony Hopkins in The Dawning. He performed in a number of other productions, but wasn't really at the stage on Breaking Through. In fact, by 92-93, he was thinking about giving up acting. But then there was one of the sliding doors moments that changed the trajectory of his life. He was sent a script for which, for the first time in a while, excited him. He'd been going through the motions of reading tons of scripts, looking for something that moved him, and then suddenly it had arrived. The script was for a film called Four Weddings and a Funeral. What moved him was that unlike everything else he was reading at the time, it was funny. He was in his early 30s when the movie was released in 1994 and it became the highest grossing British film to date, with a worldwide box office in excess of $244 million. Grant won a Golden Globe and a BAFTA for his performance. And this wasn't domestic success, this was global and Grant was now a star across the world. He was everywhere. The media couldn't get enough of this floppy-haired, self-deprecating English gent. Why are you laughing, the floppy hair? The floppy hair and then the English gent. That's so Hugh Grant, isn't it? As a result of this newfound stardom, Grant got a role opposite Julianne Moore in his first Hollywood project, the comedy film Nine Months. It was commercially successful, but he was absolutely slammed by the critics. Looking back years later, Grant blamed himself. He said... I just tried much too hard and, you know, I forgot to do basic acting things like mean it. So I pulled faces and overacted. It was a shocker. In 1995, he starred in Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility and Restoration. 
They would be the last movies he's featured in for three years, following the controversial moment that we have all been waiting for in this episode. I wonder what that could be. He was good in Sense of Sensibility. I remember that had Kate Winslet in it and Emma Thompson. I don't think I ever saw that. No, too girly for you. (laughs) Grant was meant to be in Hollywood to promote his latest film, Nine Months. He later said, My problem was that my first Hollywood film and I'd just been to see it. The film was about to come out a week or two after that and I had a bad feeling about it. I went to a screening. Everyone in it was brilliant, but I was so atrocious that I was not in a good frame of mind. He said he decided to drown his sorrows before one thing led to another. That another was in the early hours of a Tuesday morning, 27th of June, 1995. A sex worker known as Divine was about to become an international sensation. The event was the aftermath of a night of drinking and dining with Grant and his co-stars Jeff Goldblum and Tom Arnold having completed two days of press interviews for the new film. Around 1.30 in the morning, Hugh Grant's white BMW encountered the infamous Sunset Strip in West Hollywood. It was there that he met Divine Brown, or her real name, Estella Marie Thompson, a 23-year-old sex worker. After parking the car on a nearby residential street, Grant and Brown were swiftly approached by law enforcement officers who apprehended both individuals on charges of participating in indecent behaviour. Grant had paid her $60 to perform oral sex in him. Grant was arrested and the famous mugshot of him sheepishly staring back at the camera was taken. Within a few hours, the media had had hold of the story and that photo was displayed everywhere. I remember that well. It was such a shocker because at that time you didn't really see that kind of story. We covered the fake shake and he went through a number of celebrities and brought controversial stories to the newspapers. But we never saw anything related to the sex workers in this way, particularly from a star as big as Hugh Grant was. But my first thing, thinking about that and thinking about obviously early hours and reliving it, Paul is Hurley. It must have been a difficult time for her. They were so high profile in the press as a as a couple. Yes. A couple that were known as a couple as much as they were individuals. Yeah. Yes. So after he was released on $250 bail, Grant's publicity team sprung into action. Last night I did something completely insane, Grant said in a statement. I have hurt people I love and I have embarrassed people I work with. For both things... I'm more sorry than I can ever possibly say. No, at the time, I have to say, I don't think I believed him. That he was he, sorry. Yeah, sorry he got caught. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Sorry I got caught. Beth, if I was to ask yeah. you, so imagine I've had a bad day at work. Let's say it was a recorded presentation and the presentation had not gone well. And I went out for a drink with my fellow presenters and we looked back at the presentation and I came away from there feeling that I'd not done the best I could do. Would you be okay with me going with a street sex worker? No. What if the presentation was really bad? (laughs) If it was really, really bad, then you've really got yourself to blame. No, just complete stupidity. Poor judgment. Poor judgment, but just no. We're talking about 1995. Now, we did an episode on Heidi Fleiss. At the time, they had a number of celebrities on their books and everything was kept very confidential. But it's obviously going to be different when you're doing it so publicly in the street. But perhaps that was linked to the spontaneity of it. Yeah, maybe. And the drink. And the drink. If he'd had a lot to drink, why was he driving a white BMW? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So he wasn't as if he was... Not that being drunk is any excuse because you you still need to know what you're doing and making that decision. No. What if I'd had a really bad presentation and I was drunk? No. <laughs> I knew you were going to pick up on that. No. And even though you would say if Liz Hurley was in the UK, he's in Hollywood, isn't he? Still no excuse. 
Well, the release of nine months was imminent with scheduled talk show appearances and significant financial investments in play. He couldn't entirely withdraw from the public eye. So I imagine he really wanted to hide himself, but he wasn't able to do so because he had contractual obligations. So despite his precarious personal life, which was evident in photographs of him and Hurley appearing distraught at their countryside estate shortly after his arrest, the show had to proceed. This is where Jay Leno stepped in. On his American talk show, just 11 days following Grant's encounter with Brown, Leno initiated the interview with an unforgettable question that would become legendary in the realms of chat shows. What were you possibly thinking? (laughs) Go Jay, go Jay. (laughs) But it's a fair question. Grant's appearance on the show exemplifies the art of self-deprecating humour. It includes the hesitant, nervous demeanour reminiscent of his on-screen characters, genuine regret, and a hint of slight exaggeration when he discusses his discomfort. Grant shared with Lena, explaining this isn't simple. People have thrown numerous ideas my way from I was under immense pressure to I felt lonely or I had a childhood accident. But saying anything like that would be insincere. I'm certain I'd be finding this just as amusing as everyone else if I were watching, but it's agonising when you're on the receiving end. Grant's display of humility turned out to be a triumph. Nine months was financially successful and Hurley continued to support him, albeit discussing her embarrassment and distress during a televised interview. Furthermore, Hollywood didn't turn its back on him. From a legal perspective, his penalties were relatively light. A $1,000 fine, two years of summary probation and mandatory participation in an AIDS education programme. If anything, this incident seemed to enhance his public image and reinvigorate his career. It showed that sometimes just holding your hands up and taking your lumps was a more effective strategy than denying the undeniable. But he couldn't deny it. He couldn't deny it, but we've seen so many instances of people going onto television and being so strict about what they can and can't be asked about. Yeah. yeah. But I guess he didn't choose to go down that route. He owned it. And I think there's a lot of celebrities that could learn from that. Yeah, that's true. He'd been caught out, he put his hands up and he said, sorry, stupid, I did it, sorry. Yeah, instead of, oh, it never happened, it wasn't me, or I was lonely, you and, know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and to start looking at the excuses that would blame everybody else, mm. you know, I'm so stressed, I did it. No, he wanted a blowjob. <laughs> that seems to be the essence of it. Yeah, he just fancied it. Yeah. So Brown's life underwent a transformation with some positive outcomes. Despite being undeniably exploited by the media, she received £100,000 from the News of the World for disclosing details about Grant's anatomy and posing in Hurley's iconic safety pin Versace dress. Wow, so she got paid £100,000 because she gave Grant a blowjob. Yeah, she did, but I don't like this bit about posing in Liz Hurley's the iconic dress with the pins. Yeah, I do remember like, that's, that. You, that's... Why would she do that? Why would she be told to do that, apart from to stir it? You definitely cannot blame her for that. Here's £100,000. Tell us what Grant's dick looked like and put this dress on. I think I'd probably put that dress on for £100,000. It really wouldn't suit me. Nevertheless, Browner stated that the scandal ultimately brought about positive changes in her life. In a 2007 documentary, she elaborated, saying that a situation led to a rescue of sorts. She earned enough from the scandal to escape from life on the streets and provide her children with a private education. She remarked, It helped me to turn it into something positive. I was fortunate that it enabled me to leave that way of life behind. Divine Brown pled no contest to engage in elude conduct in a public place at her hearing. Having violated her probation for previous prostitution charges, she was given a 180-day prison sentence. 
As Brown did not have to serve her sentence for four months, she had time to travel to the UK to promote the Fantasy Channel, an adult station which had launched on satellite that same year. She had been reported to have earned a total of £1.6 from publicity relating to the arrest with Grant. As a result, she and her manager, partner and father of her children, Alvin C. Brown, bought a four-bed home in Beverly Hills. However, most good things come to an end and she currently has a series of legal issues. There is a very serious case in play at the moment which came after police responded to a ground floor two-bedroom apartment in a crime-ridden South Atlanta estate at 12.30am. Upon arrival, they found Divine who was arrested under her legal name Estella Thompson and she appeared to be inebriated, exhibiting very slurred speech. The officers discovered a 13-year-old individual who claimed to have been assaulted. This teenager informed the police that Divine seemed to be under the influence of either alcohol or substances as she had observed her taking the pills. According to the police report, Divine had engaged in aggressive physical behaviour towards the teenager. This included grabbing her by the arm, tossing her around the apartment and forcefully slamming her onto a couch. When the teenager attempted to escape by running towards the door, Divine allegedly seized her by the face, resulting in scratches on the left side of her face. The injured girl was taken to hospital for medical attention, while Divine was transported to Fulton County Jail. During the intake process at the jail, officers suspected that Divine had concealed cocaine on her person. This could land her in jail for 30 years if convicted. So what's really interesting there is she made $1.6 million out of the incident with Hugh Grant and she bought a four-bedroom home in Beverly Hills. But when she was arrested, she was in her ground floor two-bedroom apartment in a crime route in South Atlanta estate. So clearly the years that followed the incident didn't go particularly well for her. No. But for Grant though... Honesty is the best policy seemed to work. In 1996, he secured significant compensation from News UK Limited due to a lawsuit against the highly defamatory article that had been published in January 95. The article in question was featured in the company's newspaper Today, which halted production in the subsequent November. The article had inaccurately alleged that Grant had subjected a young extra to a profanity-laden tirade while on the set of The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain. That's a catchy title, isn't it? <laughs> I don't remember that film. I don't know. This would not be the last time that Grant's frustration with newspapers would rear its head, and we'll come back to that later in the episode. Grant once again took the world by storm when he co-starred with Julia Roberts in Notting Hill, another film by Richard Curtis, who had written Four Weddings and a Funeral. In fact, Notting Hill took Four Weddings' place as the biggest British movie of all time, with worldwide earnings of $363 million. What film did you think was better? Oh, I don't, I'm not, I don't like Four Weddings and a Funeral. No? Maybe I need to watch it again, but I don't like it, no. And then I didn't at the time, I thought it was a bit cheesy. <laughs> Even though, I know, I know. You thought it was I cheesy. I know, I love Notting Hill. Well, Weddings and a Funeral is just dated. But what was it about Notting Hill that you liked? I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. So that scene makes the movie for you? <laughs> yes. And because I would have thought it was the cheesiness <laughs> of it that you loved. But the, the other part is you've got this famous person meeting a so-called normal person with this little bookshop. So that was what done it Yeah, for you. that's what did it for me. Because at the time you thought you were going to have Ronan Keating popping into your yeah, little cafe yes. that you were working in at yes. the time. Yes, <laughs> see, it could have been, yeah. That same year, Hugh Grant released Mickey Blue Eyes. Grant was falling into a pattern of being typecast as the charming but blundering, affable English gent in rom-com classics. He did it well, but it was frustrating for him at the times. And then in 2000, Grant split with his girlfriend of 13 years, actress and model Elizabeth Hurley. 
They remain friends to this day, and Grant is actually godfather to her child. Yeah, see, that's that's really nice. She's an incredibly classy lady. I mean... You like her, don't you? You've always liked her. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> but I think she showed incredible class during the incident where she stood mm. by him, which a lot of people wouldn't have done. Mm. So in 2001, Grant continued with the same character type with a slight twist as he played charming but womanising book publisher Daniel Cleaver in Bridget Jones' Diary. The film, adapted from Helen Fielding's novel of the same name, was an international hit earning $281 million worldwide. A year later, he starred in the Academy Award-nominated About a Boy. Grant was 41 by this point and his floppy hair had been abandoned and he looked to have lost some weight. That is a good film, and he is quite nice in that. He doesn't have the floppy. He's got sort of like the spiky bit going on at the front. But it was the he was forty one at this point, wasn't that? Probably the film that you said by then he'd grown up, at least in physical appearance. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you can't get away with that floppy hair forever. No, no, you can't. After starring with Sandra Bullock in Warner Brothers' Two Weeks' Notice in 2002, there was another Richard Curtis film, Love Actually, in which he played a British Prime Minister. The film was a big success, accumulating $246 million, and Grant was praised for his performance. And another one that I like, Love Actually, and they're doing a second one. They've actually, I'm sure they've commissioned Love Actually 2, proper Christmas film. And not to spoil it, but maybe there's people that haven't seen it, but yeah, he gets together with a nice person in that as well. But by this time, he's gone from playing the, you know, as we described earlier, as the affable, mm. affable but blunderous English gent. He's now playing a Prime Minister. I know the film is not exactly what we describe as gritty, but it still marks yeah. a departure from the typecast roles he played in the past. Yeah, to a certain extent. Does it not? Watch the film. No. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse. Did you like Love Actually? It's a nice film uh, to have in, on in the background when I'm wrapping presents with a glass of wine. Same as The Holiday as well. Mm. Please back me up, viewers. Still Please not back watching me up. it. Still not watching it. Um, Grant made a brief appearance when he returned for the sequel of Bridget Jones in 2004 and after a two-year break starred in American Dreams in 2006. Grant's relationship with newspapers had led to a couple of issues in 2007. Grant was arrested in London after a photographer accused the actor of attacking him with a tub of baby. I remember that. It was because at the time I was working in London and I remember... Mm. The Evening Standard on the way home, mm. and I think the front page of it was Hugh Grant attacked me with a tub of beans. <laughs> it, was, it was something as literal as that. Photographer Ian Whitaker claimed that he and Grant, who was then 46, clashed near Grant's home. Whitaker said Grant abused and kicked him before lobbing the beans. Charges were dropped on the 1st of June 2007 by the Crown Prosecution Service of the grounds of insufficient evidence. Both th- beans had probably been eaten then. <laughs> I think. It's interesting because this is an example of where Grant doesn't seem to like the celebrity lifestyle with the paparazzi outside his house. There was another issue that year in April when he agreed to receive undisclosed compensation from Associated Newspapers. And this was due to allegations concerning his past relationships with former girlfriends. That had featured in three separate tabloid articles. Grant's legal representative affirmed that all the claims and factual statements made in these articles were untrue. And in a written statement, Grant explained that he took legal action because he'd grown weary of the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday consistently publishing largely fictional stories about his personal life solely for their own financial gain. 
He further used this opportunity to emphasise that these articles often relied on the existence of so-called close friends or close sources, which were, in reality, almost non-existent. So, can journalists do that? Oh, a, clo- a source close to the star? It's definitely a grey area, because a journalist doesn't have to reveal his sources. And we know from something that, again, we cover later on in the story, but it, it was a very public thing and happened to various celebrities. They were hacking voicemails. Mm. So they were always saying a close source revealed. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that they have contact with someone, but they find the information and, and they say that. After we also started Music and Lyrics in 2007 and the flop Did You Hear About the Morgans in 2009, Grant was becoming disillusioned with the industry. Did you hear about the Morgans? I think that's for Sarah Jessica Parker. You're right. I haven't seen that film. I haven't seen it either, but you're absolutely right because he later said, I developed a bad attitude from about 2005 onwards, shortly after Music and Lyrics. I just had enough. Then I went back in 2009 and made another film. At that point, it wasn't me giving up on Hollywood. Hollywood gave me up because I made such a massive turkey with that film with Sarah Jessica Parker. Whether I wanted to or not after that, the days of being a very well-paid leading man were suddenly gone overnight. It was slightly embarrassing, but it left life free for other things. Yeah, that's an interesting turn of events, isn't it? That a film flop like that would change his perspective on things and make him look for a different direction. And I think it changed Hollywood's perspective on him as well, because he was saying the days of him being a highly paid leading man were over. Mm. So the offers stopped coming in too, which would have definitely influenced his perception on it. But he did say it left life free for other things. And again, going back to that, he's not addicted to being a celebrity. He never really seemed to care that much. No. If you think about when he even started acting, he was starting so that he could go back to his studies. Mm. It's, a, it's a job to him, or that's certainly how it comes across. Mm. Certainly at this time in his career anyway. So after what his publicist called a fleeting affair, Grant's first child was born in September 2011. He had a daughter, Tabitha, with Ting Lang Hon. In September 2012, Grant's second child, a son, was born to Swedish television producer Anna Eberstein. However, three months later, he had his third child with the mother of his first child, a son named Felix. He must have had a second fleeting affair. Yes. And in the middle of this, Grant had the biggest of his scraps with the press. In April 2011, Hugh Grant authored an article for the New Statesman titled The Bugger Bugged, detailing a conversation he had with Paul McMullen, a former journalist and pap for the News of the World. Grant had secretly recorded this conversation, and in the conversation, McMullen made startling allegations. He asserted that editors at both the Daily Mail and the News of the World, especially Andy Coulson, had given directives to journalists to engage in illegal phone tapping. These actions were purportedly carried out with the full knowledge of the senior British politicians of the time. Macmillan further claimed that every Prime Minister since Margaret Thatcher had maintained close ties with Rupert Murdoch and his top executives. He emphasised the friendship between David Cameron and Rebecca Brooks, suggesting that both must have been made aware of the illegal phone hacking. Macmillan implied that Cameron's inaction could be attributed to self-interest, stating that Cameron was very much in debt to Rebecca for helping him not quite win the election. So that was my submission to Parliament, that Cameron's either a liar or an idiot. When questioned by Grant about whether Cameron had influenced the Metropolitan Police to slow down their investigation into Murdoch journalists' illegal phone tapping, McMullen had concurred, also claiming that the police personnel had accepted bribes from tabloid journalists. He remarked, 20% of the Met have taken backhanders from tabloid hacks. So why would they want to open up a can of worms? And what's wrong with that anyway? It doesn't hurt anyone particularly. 
Grant's article gained substantial attention due to both the startling content of the recorded conversation and the novelty of him turning the tables on a tabloid journalist. He would have been delighted, wouldn't he? I think he would be, and I think he was also annoyed with them so much. I mean, he had so many run-ins with the press that when he did get some evidence that they were doing something so seriously wrong at his expense, he thought, I'm going to get you this time. Mm. Mm. And he did. And he did get him. <laughs> So while the allegations regarding the news of the world continued to receive coverage in respected newspapers and similar media outlets, the situation escalated when it was revealed that the voicemail of Millie Dowler, a murder victim, had been hacked, and evidence relevant to her murder investigation had been deleted. Do you remember that? Mm, it was the voicemails, and I think at the time you could only store 10 voicemails, and they cleared some of those, which was just unforgivable. The revelation shifted the coverage from mere media interest and widespread public outrage, eventually reaching the political sphere. Grant emerged as a vocal critic of Murdoch's News Corporation, culminating in his appearance on the BBC television programme Question Time in July 2011. Reflecting on his involvement, Grant later remarked, It's been fascinating to have a brief foray into another world. I really needed that, and also to engage with real life instead of crafting synthetic life, which is what I've been doing for the last 25 years. Again, that's his intellect coming through, isn't it? He's so... Articulate? Yes, yeah. And I think he'd be a hard man to go against because he was quite a dogged, determined man when he had a bee in his bonnet about something which he clearly did about the, the press's behaviour. So I think he would have made a, a very challenging adversary. It took until 2018 for the matter to be resolved which happened when Mirror Group newspapers issued an apology for their actions towards Grant and the other public figures, acknowledging that their conduct was morally wrong. This came after Grant accepted a substantial settlement in a high court action. Going back to 2010, Grant's career wasn't as prominent in the following years. He did Cloud Atlas in 2012, The Rewrite in 2014, and a supporting role in Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle in 2015. In December 2015, he and Eberstein, the mother of his second child, had their second child, which was now his fourth child. And to jump ahead a little for a moment, their third child, but another girl, was born in March 2018 and they married in a private ceremony at Chelsea Register Office in London. Now, what's really interesting here is he had a child with one lady, he then had a child with a second lady, then he had his third child with the first lady, and then his fourth and fifth child again with the second lady. lady and that's who he married. That's who he yes. went on to marry, yes. Mm. I wonder if they're all friends. You think they might have had some kind of three-way... No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I no, wonder... let's stick with that. That'll make if... better content. <laughs> Back in 2016, critics praised his performance in Florence Foster Jenkins before he went on to play Phoenix Buchanan in Paddington 2, for which he received a BAFTA Award nomination for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. And then Beth came oh, yeah. a very English scandal in 2018. Yeah. We like that. We do, we do. And also, the connection there is Ben Whishaw was in a very English scandal and he's also Paddington. You like Ben Whishaw? I do. I'm a big fan. A very English scandal. That was about uh, Jeremy Thorpe and the scandal that happened to him here between 1976 and 1979. Yes. Quite a different type of role that Hugh Grant then played, wasn't it? It was. I mean, like you said, you couldn't get further from the sort of rom-com characters he'd played. He was a gay man who hadn't come out. I think yeah. he had a wife also at the time. Yeah. He was a politician, a very senior politician, and he started having an affair with this younger man, played by Ben Whishaw. Mm. And then as their affair went on and Ben Whishaw became a little bit more hedonistic as he, as he moved forward in his life, 
Hugh Grant's character then tried to pay someone to kill him. Yeah, became very sinister, didn't Very it? sinister. And this was all a true story. Yes, which is, we which love is a shocking. true story, though, don't we? we a, do. a drama about the, a true story, yes. And if it is a true story, we then go and look up who the actual people oh, were so we can see how closely cast the actors were in the period. But you know, you always say to me, don't do it until it's finished. Yeah. If there's four episodes, no, no, don't don't Google it yeah. until the four because episodes. Because what, what will happen is you'll go and find the the spoilers, the, the end of the story and have that available and it ruins the whole story. And it reminds me of something really weird which you do and it's... I'm, I'm going to call you out on it right now. It's not me, it's my mum. No, it's you. It's right? not me, it's not me. I don't like doing it, my mum does it. Right. When you get a new book... I don't do it. What do you do? I don't do it, I don't do it. My mum does it, All my right. mum does it, and it irritates me. So, I don't do it. So, let's pretend for a moment that it's your mum who does it. When We don't have to pretend, when, it's my mum that does when it. When you get a new book, when your mum, inverted commas, gets a new book, what does your mum, inverted commas, do? She reads the last page. That is so bizarre. So bizarre. I don't do that. I've seen you do it. But then, I, but I don't do it intentionally. What? What? You accidentally <laughs> open the last page and read it? Honestly, because it irritates me when mum does it. I remember when I was younger, she actually read a book and she went, oh, that's sad. I was in the middle of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why she does it. It irritates her friend as well. It is the craziest thing. Like, literally going back to the... To the ending, the bit that probably has the twist. But the thing, the only thing is that, in my defence, is if I'm watching a drama, and I remember this when I used to watch the old murder mystery programmes with my mum when I was younger, I'd always like to know who the murderer was, so that when he was in the room, I'd be like, oh, that's him, oh, he's lying. But you understand that you're taking away the whole point of the, the show? Not necessarily. Because you're supposed to guess and look for the clues and all the rest of it, but... <laughs> Thank God the internet wasn't around when you were young watching this with your mum. You'd have never had any shocks whatsoever. So anyway, yeah, so we weren't, I wasn't allowed to Google the details until afterwards, but when when we then did Google it, they were spot on, weren't they? They did really well, and it, but it was very good, it was a, a brilliant show. But that was followed for Hugh Grant by another role which differed from those he'd been typecast in earlier in his career. And this was the Guy Ritchie movie, The Gentleman, and he was brilliant in that. He was brilliant, he was good, wasn't he? He got praised again in 2020 when he starred in a HBO miniseries, The Undoing, opposite Nicole Kidman and Donald Sutherland. He was beginning to cultivate a new niche, this time for dark characters. We watched that, didn't we? It was good. It was good. It has to be a good show for us to kind of, to maintain our interest. We've got quite a lot going on during the week, yeah. and for us to kind of have something that we have to deliberately go out of our way to watch. And I'm sure it was only sort of like four or five episodes, you know, of my thing. I don't like them if they're like ten episodes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was, I think it was five. Five, yeah, I'm all right with five. But it was very, very good, and again, it played Grant, and we don't want to say too much in case anyone wants to go back and watch that, but it showed Grant again in, in quite a different light, mm. but there was a bit of a, a twist in there, wasn't no, there? Was, there was a twist. So, yeah, really good show. This year, Grant reunited with Guy Ritchie for the action film Operation Fortune and appeared in the fantasy adventure film Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, where his performance as a rogue and con artist was highly praised. Mm, I haven't seen them. We haven't seen them. We haven't. He's set to star in the Jerry Seinfeld comedy film Unfrosted, the Pop-Tart Story, and the HBO limited series The Regime, alongside Kate Winslet, Andrea Riseborough and Martha Plimpton. Oh, that'd be good. He's really finding a lot of work at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, but can we just go back? The unfrosted, the Pop-Tart story. 
Pop-Tarts, do you remember them where you put them in the toaster and they pop up and they had like the yogurty thing on top? They were like the McDonald's apple pies because they'd be hot in the middle but sort of normal on the outside. Yeah, so that is what the film's about. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of a, it's a comedy film and it talks about Kellogg's and post-consumer brands competing to see if they could produce a breakfast pastry before each other did in Michigan in 1963. So Beth, that is the action-packed story of Hugh Grant. Thanks very much for joining us today. Really great to have you with us. If you do get an opportunity to leave us a a review and a five-star rating, that would be gratefully received. But until next week, talk talk to the hands. hands.